Lord willing, this evening we're going to take up our series again in 2 Samuel, working through that Old Testament historical book. This morning, however, I invite you to turn to two different places. First, in your Bibles to Psalm 103. You may notice that the song which we sang just a moment ago was the very text that we're going to be in, Psalm 103. And also, you may have nearby you the thin book labeled Forms and Prayers. You'll also find what I'm talking about in the hymnal itself. Question and answer 56 of the Heidelberg Catechism. If you're using the thin Forms and Prayers book, you'll find this on page 223. And that signals something. That signals that after two or three months of pausing from our series in the Catechism, we're coming back to it now. And if you're visiting this morning, maybe you wonder what even does that mean to be in a catechism? What is that? The word catechism comes from an old Greek word, which simply means questions and answers. And naturally, people have questions. What do Christians believe? And Christians, by the word, have answers. And we should be prepared to give everyone an answer for the hope that is in us. The catechism is tremendously helpful in providing for us a summary of what the Bible teaches So the authority comes from the Bible, but our catechism is a faithful reflection of the Bible. Now this morning, we pick up where we left off at easily one of the most important questions in the whole catechism. What do we believe concerning the forgiveness of sin? Here together with me, the words of question and answer 56. What do you believe concerning the forgiveness of sins? I believe that God because of Christ's satisfaction, will no longer remember any of my sins or my sinful nature, which I need to struggle against all my life. Rather, by his grace, God grants me the righteousness of Christ that I may never come into judgment. Just to hear those words with faith is tremendously comforting. But it would be of no comfort to us if we didn't derive this truth from the Bible itself. And one of the passages that you could go to in the scripture, when you want to know what does the Bible say about forgiveness, is Psalm 103. Arguably, I'm not going to be dogmatic, if there's one book of the Bible that you should become familiar with first, it may be the Psalms. Because the Psalms take you into all the other parts of the Bible as you deal with the issues of life. Psalm 103, verses 1 through 14. Let's hear the word of the Lord. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Who forgives all your iniquity. Who heals all your diseases. Who redeems your life from the pit. Who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy who satisfies you with good, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. 
As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. Let's ask the Lord to bless our time together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your Holy Spirit now works in us. We ask that you would, through the mercy given to us in Jesus Christ, pledge from the foundation of the world to those whom you are calling according to grace, form within us a receptiveness. O Lord, grant us to believe again and to rejoice, to praise you, and trusting that you do indeed forgive us. We pray on behalf especially of any who may not yet have received that confidence through faith. Lord, that you would please open their hearts, grant them repentance, that they too should fear and love you. For in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you're looking at your Bible, you may notice above Psalm 14, a, what's called a superscription says, Of David. The psalm is attributed to David, the same David who kills Goliath, the same David who becomes the king over Israel, is the sweet psalmist and writes a huge portion of the psalms of the Bible. It's believed that when he wrote these songs, they were taken and basically handed over to a portion of the Levites who were in charge of music at the tabernacle and later the temple. And so if you were a member of the covenant community under the old covenant and you were traveling to Jerusalem, you might go at times to the temple and you'd find an organized group, kind of like a choir, performing the psalms. And this is where you would learn many of the tunes of the psalms and where you'd be edified to hear the words that the Holy Spirit inspired. Now, in this psalm, it would have been used in what's called a service of thanksgiving. It's calling God's people to give thanks. That should not be, by the way, a once a year thing. We have special, of course, Thanksgiving Day services. But this would have been a regular occurrence, something done often at the tabernacle. And they are being called, very straightforwardly, verse 1, to bless the Lord, O your soul. With all that is within you, bless his holy name. And so imagine being among the crowd of people, going through all the things a person living in that time and place would go through. And the being charged to bless the Lord. Now it is more than 2,000 years later, you sit here, and it is the Holy Spirit who has preserved this word. And he, better than any choir, singing with the best possible voice to the depths of your soul, calls out to you again. He sings to you this morning through the psalm to bless the Lord, to praise him. And it's worth asking the question, why do we even need to be told to do this? On the one hand, if you are just thinking about what the Bible teaches, what it reveals, even what nature reveals according to God's purpose, it should be obvious that creatures should praise the creator. We did not make ourselves, nor can we guarantee any of the innumerable uncertainties of this life which God and providence brings together for us every moment. We shouldn't need this command, and yet we do. Why Do the covenant people of all people need to be called to praise God? Well, we're going to see it has everything to do with forgetfulness. 
forgetfulness. And so the Lord, through this psalm this morning, is calling you, not simply now, but as a habit of life to develop. He's calling you to focus, to call to mind, to remember the benefits of God, but especially forgiveness. Because that will result in your praise. You don't get to praise just by sitting down and saying, I'm going to praise God now. You can go ahead and try that. But there's content in praise. Praise has some kind of matter, some material that you are thankful for. And you could simply praise God for who he is in himself. But we are so weak and we are so sinful that that's, at times it feels like trying to jump up on one of those rock climbing walls to the very top handhold. Start down lower. That's what the psalmist is saying. Start at the things God has done in time, in space, in your life. Before you try to become a theologian or a philosopher and jump up there, start at how God has acted And then we come to praise. So as we consider this psalm and this doctrine, we're going to do so under two main headings. Very straightforwardly, we're going to look first at our problem. And our problem is forgetfulness. Forgetfulness. But then secondly, we're going to focus especially on this doctrine of forgiveness. What do we have? And why does that in particular lead to praise? Now, first, as I said, our first heading here has to do with our forgetfulness. This is our chief impediment to praise. It stops us from praise more than anything else is forgetting. But I want to be very clear what I mean by forgetting. When the psalmist says, forget not all his benefits, what is he talking about? You know, I trust, that the word forget can be used in a variety of ways. And the Hebrew word that was used here has a specific connotation. It has a certain meaning. Our English word is used in a number of ways. For instance, there's a kind of forgetfulness where once you have forgotten it, there is no likelihood you will ever recall that thing. Let me give you an example. At one time, all of you have, or all of you will, as I think of you younger ones, learn certain things in school. Pretty much everybody at some point has taught the formula for figuring out the volume of a cylinder. Do you remember how to get the volume of a cylinder? Some of you probably do, and it may be because you actually use this for work. Others of you, you could try for a year to remember, and it would not come back. It's functionally gone. But that's not the kind of forget that's being dealt with here. Data that's just gone from the brain. Here, it's much more like, for instance that you are aware that you have an appointment this coming Monday, and then, and maybe it's for 3 p.m. At 1 p.m., you get distracted. And maybe it's a distraction that you like. You're having a great conversation over lunch with somebody, and you keep thinking about the fact you've got this appointment, but you keep pressing it down, and you keep telling yourself, well, I've got enough time, I've got enough time, and the next thing you know, you miss the appointment. Or maybe it's an appointment you don't want to be at, And so you're pushing it out of your mind that way. Or it's that you've got something really frustrating going on. And so you don't think about the appointment at all because you're really angry about this thing and it's occupying your time. You know, you're trying to get your printer to work because it's jammed now and you just bought it and you're on the hotline calling and it doesn't even matter and you forget the appointment. That's much more like the forget not of this passage. 
It has to do with things that could be known, but which have left the forefront of your mind for one reason or another. Now tell me if that's not familiar. That constantly the benefits of the Lord lose their place at the forefront of our mind and other things go in there. And we don't even think about the benefits of the Lord. Now, why is that? Why is it necessary to actively recall these benefits? I could provide, from this psalm at least, basically two reasons. The first is this. Look with me at verse 13, or rather verse 14, and verses 3 and 10. Notice things it talks about here. First, it compares our frame, who we are as human beings according to our nature. It compares our frame to what? Dust. Weak. The definition of weakness. And then verses 3 and 10 speak of iniquity and sin. In other words, we constantly turn away from the benefits of the Lord owing to both our natural weakness and to the sins that are in us. Think of our natural weakness. And this would have been intimately familiar to David who wrote this psalm. The fact that you get hungry, that's not sinful in itself. That's life in this frame. But is it not the case that when you become very hungry, often all knowledge of the Lord's benefits are gone You start thinking, and in fact, the line between physical and human weakness and sin, often you don't even see where it transfers over. You go from just hunger to anger. And the same can be said for thirst or all kinds of intangible things that we feel a need for, to be accepted by others, to be received into community. That of itself is not wrong, that's good, to desire that. But at another point, it too can become sinful, where it becomes an idol. David, in his own time, was intimately familiar with all the things that supplant focus on the benefits of the Lord. He's fleeing for his life from a man who wants to kill him, who has all state authority in that time. Imagine that's you. Are you going to be sitting down praising the Lord? It's possible, according to this psalm, and you should. But it's not natural, according to the flesh. And even in your own life, you struggle with all kinds of weakness. Maybe you have a debilitating disease that you've wrestled with for a long time or an injury that doesn't go away, and your thoughts are being brought back to that. Maybe it's a person in your life who is like the thorn in your flesh, and it makes it so difficult to get through a day. Maybe you're going through loss of one sort or another, and you wrestle with the pain. It's a cavity left in your heart. All of these things can distract us from praise. It's important to remember that whatever you're going through is not new. As it's been said, the props change, but the plot remains. The outward circumstances of life in the time of David and your life, they look very different. You've got cell phones. They've got like clay tablets. It looks different. Human hearts have not changed. And so the psalm applies as much as ever. The second reason why it's necessary to actively recall these benefits, and that's what we're dealing with here, you have to bring them back into focus. Is because this is the most direct path to praise. This is how you get back on the train of praise, is by actively listing to yourself, verbally or literally by hand, listing out the things that we are grateful for. And you would see that in this psalm. You go through, it's just a litany, a list of benefits. He mentions all kinds of things, that God satisfies us with good 
Think about that for a moment. Think of perhaps one of the most sweet, wonderful, delicious desserts that you've ever had. And then remember, not just that it was satisfying relative to what you had that same week, but that at some other point in your life or for some other person in the world, they haven't had anything for a while. God, in his kindness, satisfies you on a daily basis with good. He heals all our diseases. There's not a disease a believer has of which that's not true. He heals all our diseases. Note he doesn't put a time frame on it. In this life, he heals us until he takes us to glory, and then he'll raise us. He heals all our diseases, especially those of the heart, those of sin. But you notice here that David focuses on one more than all the others. Five times at least in just these 14 verses, he mentions the same blessing in different words. What was that? It's no surprise here. It's forgiveness. In fact, it's the very first blessing that is mentioned. And that suggests that it was the first one on his mind, and perhaps it should be the first one on your mind. That we start at forgiveness. If you want to praise God, you start there. Now, why is that? You see in verse 13, Verse 3, who forgives all our iniquity. What does it mean that we believe that? And why do we focus on it? And this is our second main heading, second main division. First, we have to start at this, what it consists in. I'm aware that for many of us here, we have a good understanding of what forgiveness consists in. Not everyone does. And at the same time, even if you have a good understanding, remember, the point is not merely having an understanding. It's bringing it back into the front of your mind with gratitude. And so this is not a wasted exercise to hear again. What does the forgiveness of Psalm 103 consist in? What does the forgiveness of the Christian consist in? It's certainly not some things. Look at me at verse 9. Speaking of God, it says, He will not always chide. Chiding is not a word that I think almost any of us ever use, right? But it's a Bible word. It's the best word when the translators were doing this translation into English. It's the best word that they could find to get at what the Hebrew is getting at. To chide is to rebuke sin, whether with our words or with actions. It's to come alongside someone and make it really clear that's not okay. He will not always chide. That implies something about forgiveness. Forgiveness does not mean that God is casually indifferent to your sin. Being a Christian, being forgiven in Jesus does not mean that now God and you are just good friends and he doesn't care what you're doing that's wrong. Wrong! The Lord is holy. He is not a, other than that he took to himself our human flesh, he's not a man like us. He is a being beyond time and space who is the very definition, infinitely so, of all moral righteousness. He cannot be okay with sin because it's rebellion against him. It's a violation of the cosmic order. It is violence to others. At the root of every sin is a desire to kill because it is hate. All of the law is summarized as love. And the antithesis, if you follow any sin out, if you feed it and feed it and feed it, its end is death. God is not indifferent to sin. And therefore, he does chide. David is writing this as someone who doesn't even have the benefit of having lived through the history of all the kings of Israel. 
But even at this point, David knows that through the history of the judges, it could practically be called a history of chiding. The covenant people's history is one of God sending out rebukes against sin. And even today, according to the New Testament as well, say 1 and 2 Corinthians, God chastens every child whom he loves. He uses all different means. And sometimes he does that individually with your sin. Sometimes he does that corporately with a congregation. Sometimes he does that nationally with a people. God can't be toyed with as though he's indifferent to sin or unaware. But what does it mean when we talk about the forgiveness of sin here? Look with me at verse 10 and 11. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. Word fear here, what's implied is faith, a reverent faith, the evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit. So this is something that belongs to believers, to the church. And it says that, so great is his steadfast love. And this is a fascinating and important term in the Old Testament. It's one term, but it has to do with a love that is promised or is faithful. A commitment love. So it's often found in the context of covenants. Solemn promises that God makes to people. Now it says, he does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. Obviously, David just said, verse 9, that he does deal with our sins. And yet it says here, he does not deal with us according to our sins. David's getting at a very simple idea here. And one that we need to be freshly appreciative of. Or maybe for the first time, understand this is a possibility for you through faith. This can be yours too through faith. When we say that we believe in the forgiveness of sins, we're saying a few things. God does not deal with the believer strictly according to their sin. Think if he did. Now you say, yeah, you know, he may punish us in this life. He chastens us. But that was not what you actually deserved. It was enough to get you back on the right track to send a signal. It's the difference between, say, that old school teacher you read about in some book somewhere that hit a kid on the knuckles and whatever you think about that. They didn't cut the child's hand off. There's a huge difference, right? In degrees, When God chastens a person who's in the Lord, whatever he may do, it does not touch the extent of what we deserve for our sin. Sin is not simply horizontal against people. It's against the infinite dignity of Almighty God and the believer of all people in the world is aware of that. And yet we still sin. If God dealt with you according to your sin, you'd reach into your fridge to grab that big jug of milk and it would turn into dust as you touch it. If God dealt with you according to your sin, you go to breathe a breath of air, and the air itself would remember that you have used it to blaspheme the Lord, to speak evil and sin, and it would suck itself back out of your lungs. If you dealt with the Lord, and he dealt with you strictly, you would take a step, and the earth would open up, because that happens in the Bible. God uses incidents of profound justice to remind his people what we actually deserve. He does not deal with you according to your sin. He's slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, as high as the heavens, at a time when they couldn't possibly even begin to try to calculate such things. The whole point is you can't calculate it. 
And above all, he will not condemn us at the final judgment because he has received us as his own children. How did David know that? He didn't have all the benefits we have in terms of hindsight about Christ, but he had the promise given from the beginning in Genesis 3 to Eve that God would provide someone to defeat the enemy, to defeat Satan. He had the promise given to Abraham in Genesis 12 and 15 and 17 that God received Abraham through faith. And God gave Abraham a covenant, a sign of the righteousness which he had by faith, according to Romans 4.11. And that sign was placed upon not only Abraham, but his descendants after him, a sign that everyone who believes has that same righteousness, everyone who trusts in the grace of the Lord. We have something even better for the sake of our assurance, the knowledge of how God brings us to fulfillment. David was trusting in the same essential promise, but we see how it's brought to pass in Jesus Christ. In fact, hear with me again the words of question and answer 56. I believe that God, because of Christ's satisfaction, will no longer remember any of my sins or my sinful nature. Rather, by his grace, God grants me the righteousness of Christ that I may never come into judgment. I only pass by that we struggle with our sin because we've touched that some already. But think for a moment those words. Because of the righteousness, or rather because of the satisfaction of Christ and by his grace. What does satisfaction mean here? I want to ask that to the children in particular and the younger teens. What is it talking about when it says, I believe that God, because of Christ's satisfaction. We often use the word satisfaction as something subjective in us, that we are satisfied. You, you know, you uh, made a purchase online, and it comes to your house, and you're worried because the reviews were mixed, and then when you get it, you inspect it over, and you're very satisfied. You feel good about your purchase. That's not the kind of satisfaction here. This is a legal and a moral satisfaction. Something Christ had to provide to satisfy the justice of a holy God. When evil is done, God cannot be holy and pass by it forever. It's contrary to his nature. It's contrary to goodness. It's the glory of a man to pass by a fault in one sense. We are sinners and it's gracious to be gracious. But God must deal with sin. And think of the monstrosities committed throughout history. You don't want a God who just chooses to blithely ignore sin. But to have a holy God, we mean that we have to have satisfaction as well. And Christ provides this. How does he do so? Romans chapter 8 verse 3 says this very plainly. It's a brief passage. I don't ask you to turn there. But listen carefully. Romans 8 verse 3 For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. What could the law not do weakened by the flesh? Present us as righteous people before the Lord. Go ahead. Try to be perfectly holy for a day. And you'll find how weak your flesh is. In your fallen state, you cannot obey perfectly. You will never be righteous. And even then, you can't go back and fix all the sins you did. For God has done what the law that is the moral standard, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh 
in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. God himself came among us. The second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, did not have to come. Did he come for the angels? It was grace, and that's why we confess it was by grace. He did not owe it to us. Strict justice would have been to say, they've used their faculties for sin. You do it every day. I do it every day. But he came in among us, and it was not something to be expected that he would put on our human nature. Miracle of miracles. And yet he did it for us. He humbled himself to wear our nature, and even to be in our weak estate. And to suffer for us the full penalty in body and in soul to bring you forever into his presence and to raise you with an invincible, immortal body like his, a soul purified of all sin. God has done in Christ what you could not do. And I tell you this day because the word says it. If he had not, forever you would suffer. You don't have to believe it because I said it. It's the truth and you'll find out one way or another. You can go before God standing in your own righteousness, suppressing that knowledge your whole life, telling yourself that there is no God, and if there is, you've been a decent person. The law is weak through the flesh. You aren't a good person because the standard is Christ who lived a perfect human life. He's a good person. You and I were sinners. And we have to focus on this because this transforms every other benefit. Think about that for a moment. All the other benefits that you enjoy, and if I ask you to list benefits, I list benefits. I have things on there like the benefit of having loving family. I have some family that I have great relationship with. That's a huge benefit. The benefit of a full cabinet. Many of us know times in our lives where we did not, or maybe even at this moment we don't. But we can remember when we did, and that was God's kindness. The benefit of being able to read because somebody in your life cared about you when you were young and insufferable, and they were patient, and they taught you to read. And how different would your life be if you didn't learn to read until you're, say, 20 years old? The whole trajectory of everything changed because someone loved you that you had no control over and certainly didn't deserve. Those are all good. But if you only look at those benefits outside of forgiveness, then it's kind of like rejoicing for a last meal before execution. It's good to have, but it's all going away. Because if you don't have the assurance of forgiveness, all of that is just right now. But if you have the assurance of forgiveness, then it's not your final feast. It's hors d'oeuvres. It's it's the beginning before the best stuff that you can possibly, you can't even imagine. If you start at forgiveness and then out of that you say, oh God, I don't deserve X, Y, and Z, because that's the danger. If you don't start at forgiveness, you might even start to feel like you kind of partly deserve all that other stuff. I don't deserve a full cabinet. I don't deserve the family I have. I don't deserve the opportunities I have. But you gave them to me, and you didn't even give them in like a credit system where I have to pay it back. You gave it because you're generous. Then everything snowballs into gratitude. And this is why we're called to set our eyes here. We're called to set our eyes here because our primary impediment is that we forget forgiveness. The enemy wants you to forget it. The world wants you to forget it. And it's just we're so weak, so sinful. 
By way of conclusion, I want to appeal for just a moment, perhaps to some of you. How can you forget something that you've never learned? How can you forget something that you've never learned? Some of those who came to the tabernacle and later the temple and heard this psalm were not believers, even though they belonged to the visible community. Or maybe they were visiting from outside. There's some Gentile from somewhere else, and they just want to know, how do these Jews worship? I've heard about it. And they hear these things. These promises are not pronounced over all people indiscriminately. Look at verse 13. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Compare John, or 1 John 3.10. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. If the habitual pursuit of righteousness does not characterize your life, and I'm not talking over one day, I'm talking over a whole course of time. If the habitual pursuit of righteousness does not characterize you, and the love of those who are believers does not characterize you, you don't have a credible basis to identify as one of God's children. But don't mistake me into thinking that now I'm saying that the pastor is saying, go obey and love Christians, and then God will accept you as his child, and then he'll forgive you, and then you'll praise him. Birth is the analogy. You don't have control over that. But what you are called to do is to believe the promise. John 3, verse 17, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. In other words, God is calling anyone who has not experienced this forgiveness. And when you, by the way, congregants hearing this, when you... When I go down this track, pray for those people here. God is not calling you to become good so that you can be his child and be forgiven. He's calling you to believe his promise to forgive those who simply ask for it in Jesus' name. And to believe that when he forgives you, that moment, with it, he will provide his Holy Spirit and begin a whole life of growing you into his image. For that we rejoice Believe even now. And if you don't, then tonight you have this memory again. Believe then. But believe that God is so generous. And for the remainder who have believed, I appeal to you in one way. Try to imagine afresh the feeling, I am completely forgiven. I am completely forgiven, not only for my past sins, but God knows my whole life ahead of me. He's called me in righteousness. He's elected me for glory. He loves me. Out of that has to come the gratitude, has to come the praise. Perhaps the Lord will help us even now. Let's go before him and pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We praise you because you do forgive our sins. Oh Lord, the day-to-day concerns of this life so often occupy our attention. And we thank you that you know our frame. You know that we are dust. 
you don't hate us for those things. We thank you that as a loving father, you do even use, you appoint some of these distractions and you allow some of these temptations in order that we might remember again just how generous you are. We pray that you would please transform us more and more into a people of praise in order that we might follow your way of holiness. We ask that you would help us to boast before the world in the good things that we've received. We thank you for the hope of everlasting life, of reunion, of seeing perfect justice done, and of knowing that it has been done for our sake in Christ. All of this we ask in his name. And God's people pray. Amen.